This morning we're going to be in Esther chapter 3 as we continue to work our way through this challenging Old Testament book. Up to this point, the focus has primarily been on Esther, Mordecai, and of course King Ahasuerus. But today a new character enters into the narrative and it is the villain of the story. And his name is Haman. Anytime we sit down as a family to watch a movie, inevitably within the first 10 to 15 minutes, all of my children want to know who is the bad guy in the story, right? Everyone wants to know who is the bad guy. Daddy, is this a bad guy? Is this the bad guy? Well, you can know that Haman is the bad guy in the story of Esther. Now, we ended chapter 2 last week with Mordecai alerting Esther that an assassination attempt was being planned on the king's life. And as a result, Esther and Mordecai are responsible for sparing the king's life. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther informs the king, the plot is discovered, and the eunuchs who were responsible for this scheme are hung on the gallows. And as we begin chapter 3 today, there is a period of time that has elapsed. Most think around five years. So we pick up the story in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told him them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Persia, or Ahasuerus. So this morning, in these six verses, we learn a couple of things from this text. Mainly from Mordecai's point of view. And that is, number one, conviction is necessary. But number two, conviction is also costly. Conviction is necessary, but conviction is costly. Now, it's bizarre that Haman would be the one who is promoted to power rather than Mordecai. It is Mordecai that saved the king's life. Yet he has still not been rewarded, some think, five years later after he spared Ahasuerus from that assassination attempt. And we're given some biographical information about Haman in verse 1 that actually makes the whole rest of the story of Esther come together. 
Agag was the king of the Amalekites during the time of King Saul, who served as the first king of Israel. And we're told here in Esther that Haman is an Agagite. So why is Mordecai so upset at this man Haman? So in order to get the background, let's look very quickly at a few other texts in the Old Testament that will help set the context for Haman being an Agagite. Number one, Exodus 17, 18 through 16. Here's what it says. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So in between the time of Moses and King Saul, God gives Israel the promised land. After King Saul comes to power, he is given specific instructions about what to do with the Amalekites. And here are these specific instructions in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 to 3. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. That's just what we read in Exodus 17. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now Saul is given specific instructions from the Lord about how he should proceed. But look down at verses 9 through 11 to what Saul actually does. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. 
For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So at face value, it seems like what Saul has done here is pretty wise. Let's throw away the stuff that's wasteful and let's keep the good stuff. But we always know that when God commands his people to do something, he's not looking for 70% obedience. He's not looking for 80% obedience. He's not even looking for 99.9% obedience. He's looking for full obedience. And he told Saul to devote everything to destruction. And yet Saul, in the moment, attempted to keep some of the good things for himself and for the nation of Israel, which ultimately leads to his removal as king in Israel. Now, rabbinic tradition held that Haman was an actual descendant of this king, Agag, referenced in 1 Samuel 15. But also, throughout Israel's history, many of the villains, many of their enemies, were often called Agagites. As a way to remember the disobedient that Israel showed when they refused to spare, or when they refused to kill King Agag and all of the Amalekites. Now, how would we know all of this? Well, the answer is you wouldn't. Unless you pick up a bunch of commentaries or if you know the Old Testament really, really well. So for us, this story is not an immediate jogging of our memory to Exodus 17 or 1 Samuel 15. But for Israelites in the time of Esther, Haman being an Agagite would immediately register with them. They would remember this story. How Saul refused to kill Agag and kept some of the best livestock and some of the best food, even though God told them to wipe it all out. So the author of Esther here is characterizing Haman as an enemy of God's chosen people. Regardless of whether or not he is a direct descendant or if it's just a slang term to use towards the enemies of God. We are not told in this passage why Haman has been promoted. See, the author leaves us in mystery regarding this promotion of Haman to basically second in command. But when you add in the development of Haman being an Agagite, it most certainly would have created tension and frustration among the hearers and readers of this story. And what's happening here seems like an act of injustice. Mordecai, the one who informed the king of the assassination plot against him, is not promoted, whereas Haman, this Agagite, an enemy of God's people, is basically promoted to second in command. So, the question is, for the Israelites... The question is, for us reading this story, at this point in the narrative, does God actually care about the Jewish people who remained in exile? Will he still remain faithful to the covenant that he made with his people? Now remember, this is a narrative. So we aren't given the answer immediately here in chapter 3. 
we have to continue to study the whole story. Now we're told in verse 2 that not only is Haman promoted, but all who were at the king's gate bowed down to him and paid homage to him. Remember we learned last week that Mordecai was also sitting at the king's gate in Esther 2.19. But unlike all of the other servants, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. There's a lot of speculation as to why he refused to bow down. Number one, some think he's just bitter that Haman was the one that got promoted when Haman did nothing to spare the king's life and Mordecai was the one who actually revealed the attempt against his life. So some think he didn't bow down because he was bitter. I don't think that's really what the text is saying. Some people argue that the reason Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman is because no Jews bowed down to any pagan official. I also don't really think that fits the text best. I think what fits the text best is that Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman precisely because Haman is an Agagite, one of the main enemies of Israel based on the history that we just read in Exodus 17 and in 1 Samuel. So, the tension that existed between Haman and Mordecai is rooted in Jewish history. And this is the likely reason that he refused to bow down the way that everyone else did in this passage. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai has reached a point in the story when the Persian officials are observing him to see if he will remain true to his convictions or if he will cave to peer pressure and potential danger that might come from the empire. Now these verses have significant application to you and me. Instead of the question being, why do you transgress the king's command? The question for us is often, why do you transgress the culture's command? Why do you transgress Hollywood's command? Why do you transgress the mainstream media's commands, the government's commands? I assume most of you are not living under a rock. You know that the Christian worldview while still the majority worldview in the Deep South, is not the majority worldview in many other places in our country. And I'm telling you that the day is coming, if it hasn't already come, when your biblical convictions will fly in the face of what the culture tells you you should do. And in that moment, you will either have conviction or you will cave. In this story, Mordecai stays strong. Sadly, though, for many people, perhaps even those that we know, when the day comes when people's biblical convictions are tested by the culture, oftentimes what they claim with their mouths often falls away. Now the question is, 
Why does this happen? We all know people that this has happened to. They, they claim things with their mouths, but when they come under the pressure of the culture, of peer pressure, they, they seemingly abandon the faith. And they abandon their convictions. Tim Keller, you've heard of him. Some years ago, it's actually a book I referenced a few weeks ago, wrote a book called Making Sense of God. His most famous book was The Reason for God, but Making Sense of God actually was written 2015-2016 uh, as a prequel for The Reason for God. And I want to share with you what he says about why so many people, even though they have biblical convictions with their mouths, when they are presented with an opportunity to stand under that conviction, they often cave in their behavior. Here's what he says in that book. It's a long quote, but stay with me. As we have seen, much of what makes a way of thinking credible is not simply the logical cogency of its explicit tenets. Okay, cogency just means clear. Does it, is it convincing? Is it clear? Also involved, he says, are one's tacit, which means implied without having to be stated, barely perceived supportive beliefs. When people are presented with the Christian faith, the actual doctrines are given against a backdrop of other implicit beliefs, attitudes, and expectations that often include ideas about what non-believers must be like, how life ought to go for a true believer in God, and what sinning and violations of the rules should feel like. All of these background beliefs are instilled in a variety of implicit ways, and they become an important part of the supportive tissue that helps Christianity make sense. If they give way, so may faith in the explicit doctrines. So, what in the world is he saying here? A traditional background belief of being a Christian, for example, in the Deep South is this. A connection to a local church that believes the gospel helps me in business helps me in my social networks, and keeps peace and harmony in my family. That would be a background belief that people often in the Deep South bring into their Christianity. And for Dothan, Alabama, that's still largely true. But what if God moves your family to Portland, Oregon? What if he moves your family to Providence, Rhode Island? Those social capital, social networking things that take place within the confines of the Deep South are not present in these places in other parts of the country. No one in Portland, Oregon cares whether or not you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't give you any social capital. It doesn't help you in your business. It doesn't actually give you peace and harmony within your family. So these background beliefs oftentimes end up causing people to abandon the explicit doctrines of their faith. Because when the background beliefs don't match up with the explicit doctrines, it crumbles. 
Here's another example. When teenagers realize that engaging in sex, if they engage in it, doesn't kill them, and that it actually feels good, the background belief of what they have often been taught about sex is that if you engage in this before you're married, lightning is going to strike you. When that doesn't happen, and they actually enjoy it, oftentimes they begin to wonder, is everything else that I've believed about Christianity true or not? And so because the background belief happens to not be true, the explicit doctrines often cave with them. When a person is diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and given months to live, and they never thought that it would happen to them because they didn't think suffering is what happened to people who faithfully follow Jesus. Oftentimes, the background belief fades and the truth of the gospel fades with it. Because they allowed the background beliefs to take a more prominent role than what the Bible actually teaches about suffering. And in the Bible, explicitly, Jesus never says following after me will lead to an easy and comfortable life. This is why the prosperity gospel is so incredibly dangerous. Because God doesn't guarantee any of us health, wealth, and happiness. Go talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in this church right now, that are battling cancer. Go talk to our brothers and sisters around the world that are faithfully following Jesus, and they are fearful of impending death for following Christ. So background beliefs, oftentimes, if they crumble, people's faith in Jesus crumbles itself. Why does that happen? Because they didn't actually understand what the Bible taught about what it meant to be a Christian. They assumed. They brought their own assumptions into their understanding of what it meant to follow Christ rather than actually opening their Bibles and reading what it says. So for Mordecai, here in the book of Esther, if the background belief of this God won't ever put me in a situation where I will be forced to bow down to a foreign official. If Mordecai would have believed that background belief, it could have caused his faith to crumble. But he didn't have that assumption. And he didn't bring it into his faith. Nor did God ever promise him or us that he wouldn't be forced to do this. And the text says, day after day, And he would not listen to them. They were pestering him. They were seeking to find out why he refused to give in to Haman. The ways of the world are relentless. Satan is relentless in his attempts to try to get God's people to cave to biblical conviction. To cave to what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. He will do whatever he can to try to get those background beliefs to cave so that ultimately you will cave. But it's not what Mordecai does, does he? He doesn't bow down. He has conviction. He's willing to stay strong. He even reveals to all of the other officials that he is in fact a Jew. We're told that in verse 4. So what does Mordecai show us in this passage? He shows us that conviction is necessary. Standing for what you believe in biblically 
matters. And he had a conviction that he as a Jew would have nothing to do with an Agagite who is a part of the history of the first king of Israel being removed from his throne for failure to disobey or for failure to obey God. It would have been really easy for Mordecai to say, listen, that story about King Saul happened a long time ago. This is not a big deal. Let's just all bow down to Haman. It's going to blow over. God will forgive me. But he doesn't do it. Because his mind and heart is rooted in the biblical story of God's people. Conviction is necessary, Christians. But number two, conviction is also costly. What would Haman's response be to this act of defiance? Look at verses 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Conviction in your belief, does not always lead to immediate reward. Does it look like at this point in the story that Mordecai is going to be rewarded for his faithfulness to not bow down to Haman? He's going to be punished for his conviction. And more than that, at this point in the story, the entire nation of Israel will go extinct because Mordecai would not bow down. So we should be careful when we are training the next generation that we teach them that when you have a conviction and you stand for it, there is a high percentage chance that you will not experience immediate reward for staying true to the truth of the gospel. Which is why we train our children and our grandchildren to remember that we are not preparing them for this life. We are preparing them for a better life. We are preparing them for a life when we will see Jesus face to face. And in that moment, we want to be able to stand up and say, we stand on the word of God. That is what we want to train the next generation to do. It's worth it to follow Jesus 100%. But brothers and sisters, it is costly. Let's tell our children and our grandchildren that. Haman's name in the Hebrew sounds actually very similar to the Hebrew word for wrath. Which makes perfect sense. Because we're told that Haman, when he finds out that Mordecai refuses to bow down, is filled with fury. And now, this fury, this wrath, is going to be on display through the elimination of not just Mordecai, but all of God's people. And at this point in the Esther story, we actually see a reversal of the gospel. In Esther, Mordecai maintains his obedience and the wrath of Haman is on display with the plan to completely eliminate the Jewish people who don't deserve it. But in the gospel story, Jesus maintains his obedience perfectly. And the wrath of God is poured out not on people who deserve it because of their sin, but on Jesus himself, which ultimately leads, ultimately leads to the saving of God's people. Wrath, 
leads to the elimination of God's people in Esther, while wrath leads to the saving of God's people through Jesus. We're already seeing glimpses of the gospel here in Esther. One commentator says this, God's absolute sovereignty is displayed magnificently in the great paradox that even Satan's wrath and retribution working through worldly powers is nevertheless constrained by God's eternal decrees. God's, God works concurrently through the very forces that Satan means for evil to bring about his perfect good. So God allowed the evil plan of Haman so that he could ultimately use Esther and Mordecai to save his people from genocide. And if you wonder why God would allow Haman to come up with a scheme like that, remember that God ultimately defeated Satan using Satan himself. John Piper points this out in his book on providence. It's brilliant. I'd never thought of it before. But did you know that God actually uses Satan to defeat Satan? Because in the story of Jesus, Satan enters into Judas's heart. And he kisses Jesus. And Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified. So it is Satan who enters into the heart of Judas... Leading ultimately to Jesus' crucifixion. But what Satan didn't understand is God allowed all of those horrific things to happen. And God gave Satan all of that power to do those horrific things because God ultimately knew what Satan didn't. And that is that as soon as Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected three days later, that was the event that led to Satan's death. Now, he's still active, but the the war is over, brothers and sisters. Satan has lost. We still fight the daily battles, waging war against him and waging war against the flesh. But Satan has lost. And you know how God defeated Satan? He used Satan to defeat Satan. The ultimate picture of God's providence He uses Satan's own tactics to defeat Satan himself. God uses all things for the good of his children. Even allowing Haman to craft this plan with the potential loss of all of his chosen people. Whatever evil you have experienced or will experience, trust that if you are in Christ, he will use even that evil for your good And his glory. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has already happened. And so Christians can rest in confidence that ultimately everything will be okay. That is our peace. If you are unsure what the future holds for you today, let me remind you that it is on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And if you are lost in your sin today and not in Christ, you do not currently have the resources to understand how evil and suffering can be used for your good. So I urge you to repent and come to faith in Christ so that you can know and believe as all of the brothers and sisters in Christ around the world believe that God uses all things for our good. Let's pray.
God, as we get now into the, the tension of this narrative, beginning to wonder what is going to happen to God's chosen people. Now, obviously we know that they're saved, but here in Esther 3, when Mordecai refuses to bow down, we're left wondering, will you be faithful to your people? Will you be faithful to the covenant you made with them? In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in the giving of the law in Exodus. We are thankful that we live on this side of history. And we know that you always remain faithful to your covenant promises. And that Satan has been defeated through the death and resurrection of your son. You work all things for the good of your children. And we thank you for your wisdom and your providence that is on display in this great book. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.